you want to open your Bibles to the book of Joshua, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, the sixth book. We are starting a time, uh, next several weeks, we'll be in the first part of the book of Joshua. We've been, over the years, walking through the history of the Old Testament uh, on the, during the winter. And as far as like our introductory time, I figured we would just review the story a little bit. How do we, how do we end up, where do we find Joshua and how did we get here? So <clears throat> here's the story of the Hebrew people. Uh, during the time of Moses, God rescued the Hebrews out of Egypt. He brought them across the Red Sea closed the Red Sea to forever protect them in their salvation. And as soon as they were on the other side, needs and trials began to arise. So they cried out for food and God gave it. They cried out for water and God gave it. Well, there was also um, a hostility. There was a king, his name was Amalek, and he saw this nomadic caravan of people going through the desert and he came down upon them. And there was this battle between the Amalekites and the Israelites. And this story is kind of an interesting story because it's the way it's told is while the Israelites were warring against the Amalekites in the valley, Moses was up on the ridge and he raised his hands before the Lord in prayer. And as long as his arms remained up, the Israelites prevailed, but as he, the time wore on, his arms got tired and they began to fall. And when his arms fell, the Amalekites took the advantage. And so men came alongside of Moses and held his arms up for the duration of the battle. And the Israelites uh, were victorious. Incidentally, the commander of the army of Israel that Moses assigned, his name was Joshua. It's the first time we hear the name Joshua in the Bible, at least as a character. And actually, I don't know when he actually receives the name Joshua. Originally, his name is Hosea. And somewhere during this, this time of Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he receives the new name Joshua. It's worth noting, by the way, the word Joshua means God delivers, or the deliverance of God. And in the Hebrew, it would actually sound a little bit more like Yehushua, which when translated into the Greek, and then when the Greek is then translated into the English, we get the word Jesus. So, in some level of irony, when you're reading your English translation of your Bible in the Old Testament, we come across Yehushua, we call it Joshua. When we're in the New Testament, and we come across roughly the same name, we use the word Jesus. Same name, same root. Uh, you, Jesus is Yeshua. Anyway, Joshua is the commander of this army. Now, this is a little another interesting thing. Is so the Israelites make it to the mountain of God, where they receive the Ten Commandments, and then there's this fairly mysterious experience that happens, where God calls Moses up to the top of the mountain to receive the law. He's going to write them commandments on tablets, tell him other things. But 
part of the way up the mountain, he doesn't go alone. He goes with Aaron and Aaron's two sons and the 70 elders of Israel. And they go, it seems like some way up the mountain, but not all the way up the mountain. It's, it is a mysterious story. But they go up a space and there they, they all meet with the Lord and they eat before the Lord. And then God says to Moses, okay, you come on up. I want to talk to you some more and give you the law. Moses says to the rest of them, you stay here or go down. I'll be back. And Moses goes up the mountain for 40 days. And he's up there for 40 days receiving the law. At least it seems like he's up there all by himself for 40 days. But it does say there's this one little verse in Exodus 24 that says, Moses went up alone with his assistant, Joshua. Joshua's there. I want you to imagine that being Joshua. 40 days, for 40 days, you're with Moses as Moses was with God. You're like a fly on the wall. I don't know. I don't know. It's a pretty special 40 days. I'm not saying that Moses and Joshua are a duo. They're not. They're not. Joshua is his assistant. But he was there. Well, as you may or may not know, during that 40 days, the Israelites grew tired and impatient and decided God had failed them or that Moses was dead or something like that. And they made a calf, a golden calf, and they bowed down to it and they rose up in revelry and they sinned greatly before the Lord. And it was sort of a very hard moment in uh, the relationship of God and Israel because right out of the bat, they say they're going to follow all the commands and 40 days later, they're worshiping an idol. And so when Moses comes down, they have to sort all that out. And so later on in Exodus, the, there's the, the Israelites are encamped here, but the tent where God meets with Moses is outside the camp here. It's sort of expressing God's, I don't know what I'm going to do with you people yet. Because in the future, God dwells among the people. But at this point, the tent of God, the tent of meeting is outside the camp. And what it says is, it says, any time that the Lord wanted to meet with Moses, the cloud would descend into the tent of meeting, and Moses would enter the tent of meeting, and he would meet with God there. And while he met with God in the tent of meeting, the Israelites would stand at the doorways of their tents, it says, and worship. I don't know exactly what, exactly what that looked like, but you might, they might want to know, like, is God going to take us back? And then when Moses was done meeting with the Lord, the smoke would rise out of the tent back into the sky and Moses would exit the tent and he'd go down into the camp and he would explain, this is what the Lord, your God, said. Only Moses would go in the tent, at least so it sounds and so it seems. But then you come across this little verse. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Leads Israel into battle. Is with Moses on the mountaintop. Like a fly on the wall. Guards the tent of meeting when Moses is not there. 
Well, eventually the Lord recovenants with the people and says, I'll be your God and I'll take you to the promised land. And so they set out from the mountain of God with the tabernacle and they head up to the promised land and they get onto the border of the promised land. And Moses says, let's select 12 spies from among ourselves to go in and spy out the land that God's going to give us. So they take one spy from each tribe to go into the land. Any guesses on who the spy from the tribe of Ephraim was? Joshua, son of Nun. So the 12 tribes go into the promised land to spy it out. They're there for 40 days. And when they come back, 10 of the 12 spies say the land's fine, but it is, this is a disaster and a train wreck getting ready to happen. Essentially, God has sold us a false bill of goods. There's no way we can take this. We've been betrayed by the Lord and we've been betrayed by Moses. Two of the spies say, no, this land's good. We should go. God will give it to us. One of those guys' names is Caleb, and we don't hear much about him in the Bible. The other guy's name, you know who that is? Joshua, son of Nun. So because the people rebelled against the Lord at the threshold of the promised land, the Lord penalized them. He sent them on a 40-year penalty lap. He said, you, this generation, this adult generation of Israelites will not experience my promise. You're going to wander in the wilderness until you die out, and I will bring your, the next generation in. Everybody in the tribe of Israel, among the people of Israel, is going to die in the wilderness, except for two men, Caleb and Joshua, son of Nun. So they wander for 40 years. At the end of the 40 years, God has brought them back to the threshold of the promised land. At this point, they're sitting right, essentially, on the edge of the Jordan River, looking west into the promised land. And the Lord says to Moses, Moses, go up on this hill. And Moses goes up on the hill and he says, I want you to look and I want you to gaze upon the promised land. That is the land I'm going to give the people, but you, I'm going to gather you to myself. And Moses says this. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. The book of Joshua is not about Joshua. It's about God, his people, and his promise. But Joshua is a central character in this book. And I'd like you to imagine, in light of these are these data points. So there was one other example I, I could have given you. But these are essentially the data points that we have of Joshua on the way here. And I'd like you, just in your mind, to sort of take in who this man is. He's not off the street. Okay? Can you imagine apprenticing in the shadow of one of the greatest, certainly greatest men that I've ever read about, Moses? To have grown up like, like his nearest lieutenant, sort of growing up hearing him in every conversation, every conversation with man, every conversation with God, you're hearing, you're in, you're part of your processing. I mean, could you give a young person a better gift than that? We even think of this as parents. Can you give a young person a better gift than to let them grow up in the shadow of somebody 
who's regularly communing with God and with others about God. It's the best way to raise a person. And he's proven himself. He fought for the Lord before he knew the Lord. Now Joseph is here, Joshua is here. He's the oldest Israelite, we might presume. Maybe Caleb has him beat, I don't know. But he's essentially the oldest Israelite, the wisest Israelite. He's battle-proven, he's a doer, he's faithful. The Spirit is in him. The book of Joshua is beginning with this man on the east side of the Jordan River. So they're looking west, getting ready to cross. And there's nothing between them and the land of promise but the river. And today, we're going to see God speak to Joshua directly for the first time ever. So let's look at the first four verses of the book. This is what it says. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. For the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory." Two things sort of surface in this first uh, part of the conversation. Two things are emphasized. The first one is, is that Moses is dead. The second is that the promise remains. Moses is dead, but the promise is alive. That's really what the first four verses is saying. In fact, that geography that you saw there, Lebanon to the Great River to the Great Sea, all of that, that is describing the land of promise roughly. It's actually a pretty optimistic or large view of the promise as it's been handed down through the generations. So God's reminding Joshua, hey, the promise that I've given and that you've been living towards did not die with Moses. It wasn't Moses' promise. Moses didn't earn it. Moses stewarded it with the people. But it remains to this day. In fact, we, if we remember our, our story well, actually the promise was not originally even given to Moses. The promise was given to Abraham 500 years earlier than this moment in the Bible. 500 years earlier, God gave Abraham the promise. And he gave Abraham the promise not because Abraham had done anything. In fact, the promise comes before Abraham has done anything at all. And he's a man of pretty small faith at the time. God's given the promise, and the promise remains. Since Abraham, there were all sorts of misdeeds, all sorts of failure on the part of God's people. There were trials, there was slavery, there's all sorts of things that come in the way, wandering in the desert and faithlessness and all of those things. But throughout all of that, the promise is still alive. That's what God is saying to Joshua. I want to take a second just to remind us that that's good news. A lot can happen in this world 
A lot will happen in this world. And yet God's promise remains. That's something that we can be sure of. The many things in life that we may question, God would have you know, the one thing you can be sure of is that my promise will remain. It is alive. And you might even say, but I failed. And he'd say, well, my promise was never given to you. I didn't even give it to Moses. My promise was given in my name. I spoke it on my own behalf. So you could fail, or you could fall, or you could trip, or you could slide, or you could do all sorts of things, but the promise of God will not fail. And it's always there for you. It's always there for you. Let's look at the next verse. So he reminds them of the promise, and then verse 5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Now, verse 9, if you just follow down, he kind of says the same thing towards the end of it. He says, the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. So there's this, it ends up being repeated along the way there. But you notice there's this reminder of the promise of God, and then there's this reminder of the presence of God. So what I said I will do, and I will accompany it. You will succeed because I'm with you. That's what God's saying. I will do it. Sort of the promissory reminder of his presence. I find that very encouraging. Like there's this promise that won't fail from the Lord, and then there's assurance from the Lord that it's by his hand that he'll do it, right? We find this hope in Christ. God says he'll save us, and then who does the saving? All the work of salvation is done through his own son. I will do it. Very encouraging. On the other hand, if you let this sink in a little bit, it has some, some implications. Like if somebody said, I promise, you're going to have all of that land, and don't worry, I'll go with you. Eventually, you might ask a question. Even if it's a day later, you might say, why am I not supposed to worry? Right? Why did you say that last part? You know, if you've ever parachuted, skydive, they put a parachute on you, say this thing works all the time. Don't worry, but this is your reserve. <laughs> well, if it always works, why do I have a reserve? No, don't worry. And is the reserve any different? Is it the same thing again? Because <laughs> if this fails... Will that work? This, there's this assurance. God is going to go with you. Joshua, I will go with you. And it certainly at one level is encouraging. At another level, it should raise questions like, why do you need to come with me? What's, what's going to happen? This reminder of the presence of God brings me back to 40 years ago when spies went in and they came out and they said, there's fortified cities, there's giants, there's armies. We are like grasshoppers to those people. That's what they said. They're gonna, we're going to squash us like a bug. They were the first ones to sort of coin that term. God's giving you something. It's yours. And he's going to go with you. And so it's yours in his power. But it's not like it's vacant land. 
It's not like it's a prairie with lilies and cattle. We love to say God has cattle on a thousand hills. The problem is those hills aren't mine yet a lot of times, right? They're, God says, go with me. Go and take them and I'll be with you. But there's fortified cities and walls. I mean, if we just, let's just think about it. Let's talk about what the promised land is not. The promised land is not a vacant space. It's not a spiritual vacuum. Let's just take the historical nature of the book of Joshua and elevate it for a second, okay? I'm not saying question its historicity. I'm saying let's allow its historicity to sort of speak, transcendently speak something more. Let's imagine this is one big invitation of the Lord into his life. God's inviting you to walk with him. He's saying, I have, I have a promise for you that remains. doesn't matter that you failed me because the promise is in my name. I've given it to you. It's still alive. And you say, oh, Lord, how will I know I can take it? He would say, because I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. That's what the Lord says to us, every one of us. I will never leave you or forsake you. Walk with me. That's the invitation to God is walk with me in my life. Come with me. Live my life with me. And I'll give you this land and I won't leave you. Well, that land is not vacant space. It's contested territory. I'm saying inside of you. We, I grew up once and people would say stuff like there's a Jesus-shaped hole in your heart that he needs to come fill. The problem is that there isn't a Jesus-shaped hole in my heart. There's a fully occupied heart that Jesus needs to invade. And he needs to carve out, not a space for him. He needs to give me an entirely new heart. There is no vacancy in this corpse when Jesus comes. And he has to, he's, he's pitting me against myself in my Christian life. You ever feel this way, you know, when Paul talks about the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do, and how frustrating, and that ugh, that ugh of life, where you feel like you are your own worst enemy, that is a sign, by the way, that you are walking with the Lord and his promises. Not that you're not. The fact that you're, ex- you're pitted against the battlefield of your own soul, sort of expelling fortified cities, is a, is a mark of life. That's the situation here. We sometimes too flatly describe salvation as you believe Jesus died for your sins, you put your trust in him, and you'll go to heaven. I go, that's all true. What about this big middle part called now? Well, there's cities and walls and people. And it, your soul is occupied territory and it hates what is about to happen. That's what's being said here. Matthew 10, Jesus sends the disciples out two by two. He says to them, hey, you're going to go out like sheep among wolves. and All sorts of difficult things are going to happen to you. You're going to be abused and persecuted. Really, really difficult time. But he says, but listen, when you're called in and when sort of the thumb is put on you and you have to speak, don't worry. He says, because the Holy Spirit will give you words. Why? Because I'll never leave you or forsake you. He says to them, you're going into hostile, contested territory and you're going to take it. When you open your mouth to take it, God will speak. So he says to them. And I'm not talking physical territory here. Let's, we're, going to lift, we're going to do a lot of this. We're going to do a lot of lifting out of the story of Joshua to say, what is the grander story the Lord is pointing towards? 
and it's you and me, well, Matthew 28 does the same thing, right? All authority and power has been given to me, therefore go. Make disciples of all nations. There's this this very Joshua-esque charge. You were not in the Lord, and now you are, so you're going to cross a river, right? You're going to get wet. When you come out, you're on the other side. And that's the picture. And when you're on the other side, do not be afraid, for lo, I am with you even until the end of the earth. That's what he says. David would have said it this way in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. You are with me. The psalmist does not say, because you're with me, I never find myself in the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't do that. It assumes, it assumes, I will go through this contested territory where you will one day prepare for me a table in the presence of my enemies because you're with me. That's what he says. To whatever degree you experience the calling of God in your life, and I don't mean like called to be what, I just mean when God God knows my name and I come when he calls at some level, right? You are not expanding into the void. You are expanding into contested territory. That's why the Christian life is hard. But don't be fear, right? You have the promise and you have his presence. Okay, let's look at a few more verses here, 6 through 10. The Lord continues with Joshua. He says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to our fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do... uh, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I'll just read a few more verses here. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. For within three days, you are to pass over this Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. We'll stop there. So we're reminded of the promise of God. It still stands. We're reminded of the presence of God. He will not forsake us. And now we're reminded sort of of, we might even say the covenant of God or the call. The call that we need to live our life with strength and courage. This is, I think, the theme of this book. And so I'm going to ask that you would try to hold on to this over these next seven weeks that we're in Joshua. Try to hold on to the concept of being strong and courageous in the Lord because it it really is setting the direction for the book. There is in the Christian life a, a a really a glorious transfer of these concepts, right? Here they are looking towards a promised land. 
where they can settle and have peace. For us, we look forward to a promised land, right? One day there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, but now we're finding to be settled and at peace in the Lord. So our inheritance is an inheritance of peace with God. And that reaches all the way back to sort of the things being talked about right now. And in these things, he says, don't worry. I will do what needs to be done for you to have your inheritance, to which we would start to think, well, why am I not supposed to worry? And that is followed up by this mountain of a teaching, which is be strong and courageous. Now think about that. There's this promise. Here's a promise. It exists. I'm going to give it to you. Okay. Added to that as a bonus, I'm going to go with you in it. And on one hand, you think this is great. And then on the other hand, the very next words out of the mouth of the Lord are, by the way, above all things, you need to be strong and courageous. I'm going to give you the promise, but it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. That might define the true Christian life is you being given the promise of God and it being the hardest thing you've ever done. Why strong and courageous? From the text, why strong and courageous? Is it because of walls and giants and fortified cities? Is it weapons? Is it battle? Is it lions and tigers and bears? Is that why here? It doesn't sound that way. I mean, maybe. I mean, in a few chapters, Joshua is literally going to be leading men in battle against Jericho and Ai. And there's been battle after battle after battle in the book of Joshua. Joshua is this, it's a very difficult book from that perspective. It's very much a book of conquest. And yet, right here, he doesn't say, I need you to be strong and courageous because you're the general and I'm gonna, you're going to lead men into battle. That is not what he says. He says you need to be strong and courageous and above all things you need to make sure that you obey what I've told you to do. That's what we're called to here. To not turn to the right hand or to the left but to follow all the words of the law is what he says to Joshua. He says meditate on them day and night. He says that they should, the words should not depart your mouth. All of this is in front. All of this real life is in front of Joshua and the people of Israel. And what he says to them is, is you need to be strong and courageous to follow the law. I find that interesting. I don't think that's intuitive. I don't think to us, that's normally how we think of bravery. I think we think of bravery as going into harm's way or some great feat of daring or something like that. Um, we, we see David and Goliath and we go, that's bravery. We see Daniel in the lion's den and we think, well, that is bravery. We see Peter coming before the Sanhedrin and boldly speaking and we go, well, that, that's bravery. Or Paul in prison, that's bravery. Or the stories of the martyrs, I mean, that's bravery. We look at those moments and it's easy for us to really think of courage. There's courage that that moment required bravery. We look at daring situations and we think those daring situations Required bravery. Not realizing that every one of those daring situations were brought about because of bravery. Just think about this for a second. 
Strength and courage is what got these individuals to these points of bravery. I want you to appreciate this. David and Goliath. David didn't stumble on Goliath. Goliath didn't like burst out of the woods, like rushing at David. David was bringing cheese to his brothers on the battlefield. And he heard a man blaspheming the name of God. And he said to his brothers, you guys let him do that? No one's going to, no one here is going to rise up and do anything about this man who's making light of the name of God. That's where bravery starts, right there. Daniel in the lion's den, we can say, well, Daniel sure was brave walking in the lion's den. Truth is, he didn't have any option. Brave or coward, he's getting thrown in the lion's den. The bravery for Daniel is decades and decades and decades of a faithful life being lived in a wildly secular environment, figuring out where he draws the line, right? That line of wisdom of going, this is the line of wisdom, and I will be brave right up to it. I will do this so that one day when someone says, someone casts a law that says no one else can bow down and pray to any other God but this one, Daniel says, well, it's my prayer time. And he prays. That's where the bravery shows up. The bravery shows up in Daniel by him not turning to the right hand or to the left apart from God. He prays to God and God only. You could go on and on and on with these sort of Christian heroes, these heroes of the Bible. And you look and go, well, the moment that we remember is not really the first moment of bravery. It's the last moment of bravery. And before it were all these other tiny little expressions of cumulative strength and courage in the way they live their lives that gets them to this point. So I, I'm going to say this, uh, like, I'm going to say this with a point, and you can, like, you can file it off, okay? So I'm, I don't necessarily think that, I don't think this is you. I'm just saying it in its sharpest version. You know, I think sometimes we look at situations like David and Goliath, Daniel the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We hear stories of persecution in foreign lands, and we wonder, I wonder if I were there, if I would be brave to do the same thing. Okay, I think many of us wonder that from time to time. While at the same time, we manage our spiritual environment so as to avoid all of the little steps of strength and courage that would ever put us in that position in the first place. What I'm saying is, who wants to be thrown into a lion's den? Nobody. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant to talk about, what would I do if I got thrown into a lion's den? If you're not willing to do the million things in front of it, the small little life of faith and courage in front of it that even puts you in harm's way. What I'm saying is, is we have found the antidote to the lion's den. And the antidote to the lion's den in our minds is not strength and courage, it's weakness and fear. Where we could, and again, I'm saying it with a sharper point, and I'm saying it with the sharpest point I can, and then we can sort of take the derivative of it. But there is something in us that says, you know what, if, if I'm smart and I carefully compromise, I will avoid situations that will one day propel me down the path to these places where maybe I'll have to show bravery. And I'm saying, in those moments, you're exhibiting the absence of bravery. These brave moments 
are at the end of a train of consistent bravery. Is it possible that your life that you're living is defined, well, let me ask you this way, is the life that you're living in the Lord, is it defined by strength and courage or by weakness and fear? Joshua's getting ready to go to war and God's teaching to him on courage is about truth. Not battle, truth. Cling to my way, he says. Because compromise avoids conflict and controversy. I mean, I, I totally see. What, what would the wise, just pure wisdom of man say to Joshua after crossing the Jordan? They get into the land, and here's Jericho. And someone could say, well, you could destroy it. Or you could surround it, wait them out, and sue for peace. Not lose anybody. I mean, let's do the math. We could walk all through the promise. Let's talk about it the interior. We could navigate all through the promised land of our soul, all through ourselves. And rather than like actually taking down strongholds of the enemy in this contested territory, we can consistently and wisely in the world's ways negotiate compromises and peace all over the place. Well, I'll let you live in me just only on Fridays or only in the dark or only when they really deserve it or because this makes me more effective at my job or you see you see how you've not you've co-occupied the land with the lord you've sued for peace with the enemy in this picture this is what the lord is saying the lord is leading us into a story of absolute intolerance of something that is not of him and he's saying that requires strength and courage you have to have strength and courage to have intolerance in your life for something that is not of me. Okay. I want to read uh, two, three more verses and then we'll close here. Verses 16 to 18. Um, I'm skipping 12 through 15 is sort of a little bit of an inside baseball narrative. So you could go back and read it in Numbers. It'll surface again in the Bible. But 16 to 18 picks up. Joshua has told them, hey, we're leaving camp in three days, and this is what the people say. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandments and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Now this is a little bit ironic. The people say to Joshua, you bet, we'll follow you just like we followed Moses. Which never happened. Like, I mean, by and large, I think they, they moved together. But the story of the Israelites is littered with occasions where they hated Moses and they grumbled against Moses and they tried to supplant Moses and they tried to overthrow Moses and they sought to abandon Moses. So there's a sense of, don't worry, Joshua, we are treat you just like we treated Moses. And then they say to him, only be strong and courageous. And, you know, I could sort of have some enjoyment on beating up on the Israelites, but the truth is, that's us. And I, I will say this. This reminds me that on our best days 
and in ceremonial ways, we all agree. We all agree that we want to follow God. There's just times where we go, yeah. Follow God, strength and courage, you bet. Just, just lead us well, Joshua. Like there's a sense of, in a very calm environment, people of God make the earnest claim in their hearts that we collectively want to follow God. And that, to me, should be met with the reality that it just is hard. It's very, very hard. For this uh, time in the Word, um, I'm going to ask you to, and I mean this next several weeks, seven weeks or so that we're in Joshua, I'm going to ask you to consider something. I want you uh, to consider introspectively looking at a place in your life where maybe strength and courage have not been predominant, but rather it's been weakness and fear, okay? Some area in your life that because... Being, you know what you're supposed to do, it's just hard. Because the land's contested. And I, I want to challenge you to uh, identify that and not let it go. That's what I want. Now, I, what I, I want to be careful here for some of us. Some of us have sort of these, um, I would call something like addictive behaviors or long-term sins, sins we've been fighting against for years. I would say... Maybe don't pick that right now. The fact that you're fighting it, like once again, you're taking the battering ram against that wall, means you do have strength and courage. <laughs> like that area, I'm asking for you to look somewhere else. I'm not saying victory. Victory will come in God's time. Victory comes from the Lord. I'm saying look at ourselves at places that we've been tolerating the enemy encamped in our territory. Because to uproot them is just, in our minds, too costly. And the Lord, I want us to deal with the Lord saying, what I'm asking you to do is to not turn to the right or to the left, but to absolutely believe my word. Be strong and courageous. You might want to write it down. And it's not the sort of thing you'd want to write down in your bulletin because that's going to get thrown away in about six hours. Um, maybe, maybe pencil it in your Bible. That's what I'm asking is, we're, we're going to spend real time on this. Real time real time coming to the Lord on this. It's the sort of thing you might want to mark and say, God, give me strength and courage. Because here's the deal. You may have failed in the past, but that's okay because his promises endure. They're alive. They continue to this day. Right now, we can turn to the Lord and his promises are firm. And he's the power. He's the power. He said, you go and I'll do it. You put your foot down and I'll be there. And so I'm not saying that we gallivant through the hills of our soul claiming victory. I am saying we set off with the knowledge that God is with us and that he will not forsake us. That's our prayer. Let's, let's go to the Lord. We ask you, Lord, as we ask you to forgive us in the places that we've been weak. We... We ask, Lord, for strength. And we pray, Lord, in all these things that you'd show us, you'd show us the truth of your word and the power of your might and the fact that your promise still remains. So we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.